Let us hear God's word. Psalm 108, verse 1. A song, a psalm of David. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp, I will awake in the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia I will triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our enemies, our, our armies? Sorry. Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we uh, begin here today, I want to remind us of some of the things we learned uh, in uh, a previous psalm, in particular, Psalm 90. Uh, You might remember in that psalm that uh, we are challenged by Moses to remember how sinful we are, and how our lives are brief, and the troubles that we face are really deserved, and that in a real sense, God is against us. God is against us because of our sin. This is a point we need to be reminded of from Psalm 90, but here in Psalm 108, that point is given to us again, but now in the context of God's grace overruling our sin. If we are one of God's loved ones, then even if God is against us because we have sinned in some way, and he is punishing us in some way, our only hope is to turn to the one who is punishing us. may seem kind of strange for us. We tend to want to run away from that person. But God is our only hope, even as he hates our sin. And so uh, with this in mind here, we're coming to the second half of Psalm 108. But the first half, of course, we looked at last time. It is a combination of two different psalms, or at least parts of them. Uh, Psalm 57, verses 7 to 11, corresponds to verses 1 to 5 here in Psalm 108. And then, as we'll see today, Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12, are then used here in the rest of the psalm. In both of them, David is the author, and David is fighting against his enemies. In Psalm 57, he was chased by Saul into a cave, and he begins by crying out for help. And it sounds like that he was up at least for part of the night. He was stressed, he was worried, he was anxious, but his attitude changes, and he awakens the dawn, even tells the dawn to wake up, tells his instruments to get busy because it's time to praise the Lord. And so in the morning, he praises God. We can do the same, because God is who he is, 
and his character does not change. His love within covenant relationship is the same today as it was for David, and his truthfulness and faithfulness continue today for his people. And so we too can rest peacefully. And even those nights that we struggle to sleep because we're stressed about something, okay, his mercies are new every morning. And so we can rise and give praise to our God like David does. Now, last time I emphasized the original context and its application for ourselves, but remember, it also has application then for the people of Israel after the exile. The final compiler of the Psalms places these truths right here as the second Psalm in Book 5 because he wants us to understand that even those after the exile can have this encouragement, and this hope. They too can rest peacefully amidst the struggle, not just the struggle from Babylon, but the struggles they were facing even after they came back. So Psalm 57 is more personal. David in the cave, a sleepless night, rising to praise. Here, Psalm 60 is more of a national focus. And so Psalm 57 easily applies to us. Psalm 60 might take a little bit more work to see how it applies to us, but it can as well, because it applies to us as God's people. All right, now if you look at your handout here from Psalm 108, turn on the back. Just, again, briefly call your attention to the outline here, as I've just basically summarized for us, two basic sections. Note the individual and national focus and the different themes and so on. So today, as we focus on verses 6 to 13, it's going to be helpful for us to do a little bit of, if you will, backstory to to help us to understand these words here and therefore to know how to apply them um, specifically. So let's turn then to Psalm 60. Psalm 60. And let's start here with the title. Psalm 60. This is actually the longest title of all the titles in the Psalms, and it begins this way, to the chief musician, right? So all Israel is going to sing this, set to the lily of the testimony, which probably means a a, a tune, a miktam of David for teaching. When he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. All right, so that's our context. Well, let's expand on that context a little bit. Now, we could turn to 2 Samuel 8 because it describes it there, but let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 18. Both passages are uh, very much the same, but uh, I think uh, chapter 18 might be a bit more helpful for what we are covering here uh, today. And so 1 Chronicles and chapter 18. Now, let's set the stage here just a moment. Okay. <clears throat> Chapter 17 is the Davidic covenant. And so there's, can you say, all this success. God has entered into this covenant relationship with David. Now here, chapter 18, look at all the success of David against his enemies. So let's read a portion of this. Notice verses 1 and 2 speak of the Philistines and the Moabites. And then picking up in verse 3, it says, And David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. 
Also David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And then he puts garrisons and takes some other things, and in the next verses you can see some of that. If you jump down to verse 12, Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Now it continues into chapter 19, more success for David. So in this context of, can you say everything is going well, we have Psalm 60 that refers at least to some of these things. Okay. Now, you'll notice just a couple things that maybe jumped out to you if you were listening carefully and reading carefully. You'll notice in the title, it said Joab killed these Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Here in First Chronicles, it says Abishai did. And if you were to read 2 Samuel 8, it says David did. Now, these are not contradictions, but likely all three of them were very much a part of this battle. Another thing you may have noticed is that here in 1 Chronicles, it says 18,000, and back in Psalm 60, it said 12,000. Is this another contradiction? No, we probably can't really answer the question, but I'm inclined to go down the path that says that Joab was responsible for 12, and Abishai was responsible for those 12 and 6,000 more. And David, of course, oversaw everything. So there's some questions there, but just a, uh, a few comments in that way. So with all that in mind, in this context of great success, we have Psalm 60. And listen to the first few verses. Verse 1. O God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. O restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Now, how does that fit with what we just saw in First Chronicles? Well, obviously, Psalm 60 is giving us some background that we don't see in First Chronicles 18 nor in Second Samuel 8. But what it is telling us here is that something displeased the Lord. Okay. Did David do something that displeased the Lord? Did Israel do something? Did Joab or somebody else do something that displeased the Lord? We don't know. But the point is, God was against Israel. They apparently were defeated, at least in one battle, at least in some way. The overall battle went for Israel, but there must have been something that didn't go so right. So maybe you think of Joshua and Israel against Ai at first, and then they, they find out about Achan, and then they're successful. Um, we're not given these details here, but something like that must have happened. Okay? And so here then, this context is saying, Israel sinned. Israel failed in some way. They deserved to lose. They deserved to be defeated. But that's not the only message, right? Psalm 90 is not the only message in the Psalter. (laughs) There are many others. And even Psalm 90 hints at something positive. Well, now we have this similar idea here in Psalm 108 and the connection here with Psalm 60. 
even in our sin, even when God is against us, our only hope is God. And that's what David goes on to say. So here still in Psalm 60, look at verse 4. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of your truth. Say, law. Do you see this transition? Hey, God's against me, but hey, we have this banner of truth. For those who fear God, God's opposition, God's discipline, God's displeasure is not the only um, idea, if you will. The only thing that, that God will do. There is more than that. So um, let me pause then and say this. Do you see how fitting this is, especially for those after the exile? They just endured 70 years of God's displeasure for their sin. And yet, as they cried out to the Lord, Psalm 106, God brought them back, Psalm 107. You don't have to be perfect for God to hear you. You just need to be sincerely looking to him in faith, even if that faith is very weak. And that sincerity is mixed with lots of other things. But that's not all that we see here after the exile, because Israel still was sinning after the exile, and God was still displeased with them after the exile. And yet, we go to this God, who is our only hope. So let's now come to the verses that are then used in Psalm 108. Okay? And so let's do what I did last week. Let's start with the original psalm, and then we'll compare it to Psalm 108, focus on the original context, focus on the context after the exile, and then seek to make application for ourselves. We're going to do the same thing as I did last week in that way. So let's start then in Psalm 60 and verse 5. It says this, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. All right, now if you look at your handout here, and look at Psalm 108, verse 6. And let me say this here first. There is no difference in the Hebrew from Psalm 60 to Psalm 108 in this verse. It's exactly the same. I'm just translating it more literally for us. So it says, In order that your beloved ones might be delivered, save with your right hand and answer me. All right, so note the two petitions here. And notice there's a lot of Y sounds. I make mention there, some of the creativity. All right, so in Psalm 60, then, the point is, God, you're against us, but help. Reverse your displeasure in order that those you love might be delivered. Do you see how it all flows together? Save us, help us, answer our pleas for help. Okay? Save with your powerful right hand. And so this is the original point. Now think then of David against Zobah and the Mesopotamians and the Syrians and the Edomites. God did answer. We saw that in 1 Chronicles 18. But there was a process to that. It didn't just happen as we're seeing here from Psalm 60. So let's jump forward to ourselves here a moment an application for us. Our enemies may not be Edomites. Those who come against us may not be Zoba, and so on and so forth. But we still face enemies. 
And like with Israel, we too face enemies because God is not happy with us for something that we have done or possibly not done. But even in that context, and maybe we could even say, especially in that context, we can come to the Lord. And he will hear us. He will answer our prayers if we're one of his. He's going to do it in his way. He's going to do it for our good. He's going to do it for his glory. And we may not think it's always that good or best, but, but it is because God knows best. And so whether it's the globalist coming against us or our boss or a spiritual enemy or any other, do you see how Psalm 60 and Psalm 108 even are saying we don't just grin and bear it. We don't just say, well, I deserve it, so I'm just going to, you know, <clears throat> suck it up. There is some truth to that. But notice, we still can go to God and say, God, please help me. I, I, I know I deserve this. I, I know you're not happy with me, but, but please help me. I, I need your help. You're my only help, my ultimate help. And so, again, we don't have to be perfect before God will help us. If that were the case, none of us would be helped. And this goes for our ultimate condition of needing salvation, but also the day-to-day -day as God's loved ones as we stumble and fall. All right, now let's back up and let's talk about how this applied to Israel after the exile. Again, we are in Psalm 108, though it may seem like we're in Psalm 60 here. Um, Remember, Israel is in the promised land. They have come back from Babylon, but they did not build the temple right away. They did not build the wall right away. In fact, they even married unbelieving Canaanites. They worked on the Sabbath. They didn't do the tithing right, among other things. And so God was displeased with them. They were his loved ones, but not acting like it. And so God sent the people of Canaan, including the Edomites, to harass and harm Israel. And in that context, then, here's the point, right? We can cry out to God even when we have failed and God is disciplining us. So let's look at a few passages here just to get some of our background. Let's turn first uh, to Haggai, the prophet Haggai, right near the end of the Old Testament, and uh, Haggai and Zechariah both ministered about the same time. Haggai was first, then Zechariah, but they did overlap. And they ministered during this time in Israel, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth, Zerubbabel. And note what he says here in chapter 1. Haggai 1, let's start in verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Right? right? That church is leftover, right? Yeah, we're going to spend all our time about our things, but we're not going to give much time to the church. That was basically what they're saying. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into ba a bag with holes. 
In other words, why are you not paying attention to the everyday providences in your life? You're struggling. Well, that's an indication God's not very happy. And for Israel, and in this point here that Haggai's making, is because they were not taking time to help out at the church, more or less. Now, it was more than this. Let's turn back now to Nehemiah. And we could look at several things here, but let me just highlight and summarize some of it. In Nehemiah chapter 13, the very last chapter here, most of the chapter has to do with some of Israel's sin and how Nehemiah tried to help them to live righteously. And so let me just summarize this here for us. Verses 4 to 14 is the issue of tithing. In particular, this man Eliashib was basically hoarding the tithe and was not distributing it to the other Levites. And so this sin was affecting the church leadership, basically. And so Nehemiah confronts them in their sin and tries to make it right. In verses 15 to 22, this now is for Israel as a whole. They were working on the Sabbath. And even those who didn't work on the Sabbath were grumbling and complaining that they couldn't work on the Sabbath and they couldn't wait for the next day to get busy with work. And so here comes Nehemiah and says, uh, guys, fourth commandment's for our good. What are you doing? And then we have verses 23 to 29. And in this section, it has to do with intermarriage with the peoples of the land. And Ezra chapters 9 and 10 also address this point, and in fact, do so in more detail. And uh, so basically, Ezra and Nehemiah came to the people who had married with non-believers and told them they had to break the marriage. It was obviously a very um, traumatic situation. Okay. <clears throat> so let's turn back to Ezra here now and look at chapter 4 just a moment. And just briefly here, if, you, if we begin in verse 1, notice these words, Ezra 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we will seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Hezarhaddon and so on and so forth. Well, they answered and said, no, we don't want your help, which is a good response, actually. Um, the peoples of the land, they may have sacrificed to Yahweh, but they were not sincere. It was syncretistic. This is why they had to break their marriages and so on and so forth for the people of the land. So, well, not surprisingly, the people of the land weren't too happy about being told no. So they tried to do all these things to cancel Israel, basically. And they even wrote a letter to Artaxerxes and asked for him to intervene against these, these Israelites. Now, I, I could point to many other things, but do you see the point here? The better we know our history and our geography, the better we're going to understand God's word. And so with this background, we can better understand how Psalm 108 was fitting for the people after the exile. They were sinning. Not just before they went into exile, but afterward, in these ways, and even in other ways. God's not happy. And so God raised up 
those who've harassed them in one way or another. But now to hear the words of David, how fitting they are roughly 500 years later. God, help your loved ones. We need your help. If you read the rest of Haggai, if you read Zechariah, and even portions of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's basically what they say. The key prayer in Nehemiah 9 and such, that's basically the point. Help us. Repent. Help us to turn to you. Help us to turn away from sin. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's come back to Psalm 60, and let's look at the next verse. This is Psalm 60 and verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Now, as we transition to Psalm 108, verse 7, there are no differences in the Hebrew. So this is a bit more literal. God has spoken in his holiness. Let me exalt. Let me divide Shechem in the valley of Succoth. Let me measure out. Now, as I show you there, the first two verbs um, of what God says, exalt and divide, are actually imperatives. He's basically calling himself to do this, motivating himself, you might say. And the third one could go either way, but because of the first two, it makes sense to to do it in the same way. But you see what's happening. God is answering the prayer. Now, now we had several minutes in between um, here, but you look back at verse 6 again, okay, or verse 5 in Psalm 60, the request is to save. The request is to answer our cries for help. Well, God does. God does answer. Now, it, 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 for David, he, you know, maybe he heard an audible voice. Maybe a prophet came to him and told him God's word. We don't know what, it, what happened there in that way. But God answered David. God answers us too. We have his word here. He answers us when we cry out to him. God will use other people sometimes to answer our prayers, to lead us to the Lord and, and to see what he is doing. But God answers our prayers. You see that encouragement. And now notice what he says. He begins here in this verse, and he goes on for the next two. So here in this first verse, he, he answers in his holiness, which would emphasize probably his perfection, right? Israel sinned, but God is sinless. Um, it probably even emphasizes God in his majesty. Um, last night, I, uh, had, I was watching, I had recorded the tennis match, and I was watching it a little bit later. And anyway, the channel that happened to be on was talking all about the um, crowning of Queen Elizabeth, you know, years ago. And boy, all of the pomp and circumstance was just, you know, uh, beyond measure. But think of God in his majesty being even greater than that. He is our king, the true and the eternal king over all things. And so he speaks as king, set apart, sinless, above all things, in answer to David's request. It's that same king in all of his grandeur that answers us. What an encouragement. 
All right, so let's look then at these imperatives. Again, God is speaking to himself here initially. Let me exalt, let me divide Shechem, and the valley of Succoth, let me measure out. I am definitely going to do this. It may be a way we could paraphrase it. I will raise up and exalt these places, which in turn, of course, exalts God. Now, let me explain the verbs here just a moment. To exalt right means to lift up. To divide here can refer to something negative, but here it's referring to something positive. Think of dividing the land when Israel came into the promised land and dividing it to the different tribes. To measure out, the same idea, measuring out the allotment. Okay, think of that idea. That's, that's the intention here. And so as God did it way back when in the days of Joshua, so God is now basically saying this to David and now to the exiles who are back in Israel. Okay, I'm kind of starting over again. Might be a way of saying it. Okay. Even though sin has led to a mess and lots of problems and even exile from the promised land, okay, now I'm going to start over with you again, so to speak. All right, now let's, let's uh, look at a map here just a moment to get a sense of where we are. And uh, Succoth and Shechem. Now, some of you might remember where Shechem is, maybe not where Succoth is. <laughs> But uh, if you look on a map, and uh, kind of right in the middle of Israel, okay, north of Jerusalem, um, you come to Shechem. And then if you go directly east across the Jordan River, you come to Succoth. Okay, now what's interesting about these two places, and probably the reason why God mentions them here, is because these are the two places that Jacob came to when he returned to the Promised Land. You remember, of course, he left because of his sin. He went to Laban's house and spent roughly 12, 20 years there. And as he came back, he came first to Succoth. And do you remember he met his brother Esau? And you remember the Edomites are descendants of Esau. This is probably why all this connection is put here in Psalm 60 and Psalm 108. And so he comes back first to Succoth, then to Shechem, and eventually to Bethel. But the point is, here is the founder of Israel, right? Jacob, here Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He comes to the promised land. He had been driven out because of his sin, but he has returned. He's cried out to the Lord. The Lord blesses him. It's a similar pattern. If it happened with Jacob, it certainly can happen in the days of David. If it happened in the days of David, it can certainly happen after the exile. If it's happened then, it can happen to us too, right? You see the pattern here. You see the overall point. Okay. And so God here, in essence, in this verse, is saying, I'm going to give you the promised land again. I'm going to restore you in this way. Well, let's look then at the next verse and the next thing that God says. This is Psalm 60, verse 7. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Now, as we transition to Psalm 108, verse 8, there's only one difference in the Hebrew, and that is there was an and before Manasseh in, verse, uh, in, in Psalm 60, and there isn't one here in Psalm 108. That's the only difference. Okay. But you see how God is continuing to speak, and you see how, I don't know if blunt's the right way of putting it, 
God's not being in your face. But you see, he doesn't even give us a verb here. Okay? Belonging to me, Gilead. Belonging to me, Manasseh. And Ephraim, a strong fortress for my head. Judah, my inscriber. No verb there at all. That really packs a punch, doesn't it? It really emphasizes God really is making things right again. Even though Jacob didn't deserve it, David and Israel didn't deserve it, here Israel after the exile, neither do we. But see how God is doing this. All right, now if you look at your map here again, uh, your map may have, if you're looking at a different one, it may say Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. There were two key cities, Ramoth Gilead and Jabesh Gilead, but that whole area was sometimes called Gilead, and that's the, that's the idea here, the east side of the Jordan. As for Manasseh, east and west Manasseh, this is the largest tribe in Israel in size and, and population. And then as for Ephraim, right, this was the leader of the northern kingdom. Uh, later on, and even initially, was Shiloh. Remember, the tabernacle was placed there in Ephraim. And so this is what's protecting God's head, this helmet idea. And then as for Judah, uh, the Hebrew word literally is inscriber. It's, it has the idea of taking a hammer and chisel and inscribing the law in the stone. And so that's uh, the literal meaning. But lawgiver is, is a fair way of, of translating this. Remember, of course, the king was in Judah, in Jerusalem. This word inscriber in the reference to Judah is also spoken by Jacob in Genesis 49, verse 10. So here's another connection back to Jacob. As God said these things and did these things back then, so he's doing it in David's day. And then, of course, after the exile and for us today. Do you see the point here? As we're using these historical references, basically, God is saying, all Israel belongs to me. And yes, I haven't been very happy, but all Israel belongs to me and I'm going to bless. I rule over my people. And so this is the same encouragement for us 3,000 years after David. All right, let's look then at the next verse. So in Psalm 60, this is verse 8. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia... Shout in triumph because of me. Now, as we transition to Psalm 108 and uh, verse 9, that third line is a little different. It says, Moab, a pot of my washing. Upon Edom, I will throw my sandal. And then note the difference here. Upon Philistia, I will shout. Psalm 60, Philistia is shouting. Here's Psalm 108, God is shouting. So there is that change. And clearly it emphasizes God here. All right, now, before we look at the point, again, if you look at your map here a moment, if you don't remember where Moab and Edom are, and of course, Philistia on the west side, we still have the Philistines on the west side of Israel today. Um, All right, now, our point, God conquers our enemies. Yeah, he brings our enemies against us because he's displeased with us. But that's not the whole story. God, for his loved ones, protects us from our enemies. 
He protects us. Initially, with the title of Psalm 60, Syrians, Mesopotamians, Obab, Edomites, all that. Here now, the more traditional enemies of Israel, Moab and Edom and the Philistines. Okay? After the exile, right? Especially the Edomites were part of this, along with remaining Canaanites. But you see the imagery that is used here. God is using Moab as a servant to wash his feet. That's all he's good for. And Edom... He's like a muddy boot rack. I'm going to throw my shoes to eat him. It's an insult. And then he's going to shout over the Philistines. Shouting in triumph, of course, is the implication here. So, um, here's our, our initial point. Our broad point, though, is right, God's victorious for our benefit. Now, let me give you a couple of references, three actually, to, to look at here. If you turn to uh, Jeremiah 40, verses 11 and following, Jeremiah 40, verses 11 and following, if you look at Lamentations 4, verses 21 and 22, Lamentations 4, 21 and 22, and then thirdly, Ezekiel 25, 12 to 14, Ezekiel 25, 12 to 14, you can look at those passages and see how those passages spoke directly to Israel after the exile especially the Edomites and how they were harassing God's people. I encourage you to read that this afternoon or something like that. So we've been spending our time here in uh, the ancient world. But do you see how that applies to us today? God hasn't changed. His promises have not changed. Our enemies may have changed, but... That doesn't matter. God is still our help. God is still our deliverer. God acts this way for his church throughout history. If you are one of his loved ones, God hears us in our needs. Even, and especially, when we have need because we've messed up. We've sinned. All right, now let's look at the the last set of verses here. Starting with Psalm 60, verse 9, it says, Who will bring me to the strong city, and who will lead me to Edom? Okay, now as you transition here to Psalm 108, that word for strong, I have here the word fortification. They're actually different words, but they are synonymous. But that's the only difference. Okay, who is bringing me to a city of a fortification? Who has led me unto Edom? All right, now... <clears throat> Um, you see that God's not speaking anymore. That was the previous three verses. David resumes speaking here in this verse. So who's going to bring me to this fortified city with walls and barriers and fortresses and so forth, right? Who has led me unto Edom? Now, the more I look at this, the more I'm inclined to see these two lines in parallel, actually, And if that's the case, then the fortification here refers to the capital city of Edom, which would have been Basra. And uh, it did guard a portion of the king's highway. They had copper mines nearby. It was was, uh, a very strong city. So who's going to lead me there? How am I going to defeat them? So go back to the Valley of Salt issue, right? And go back to the Edomites harassing Israel after the exile. How are we going to defeat them? Well, 
David answers the question in the next verse. Starting with Psalm 60, verse 10, Is it not you, O God, who cast us off, and you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Now, you see how he answered the questions of the previous verse. But he answered it with a question. (laughs) And as you transition to Psalm 108, verse 11, the only difference is one of the you pronouns is not found in Psalm 108, but it's otherwise identical. So it says here, Psalm 108, verse 11, Is it not God who rejected us? You did not go out, O God, with our armies. Now that question at the beginning is, the intention in the Hebrew is to answer that with a yes. Is it not God who rejected us? Yes, it was. He did reject us. Again, we don't know why God rejected David and Israel. We're not told. We know why God rejected Israel after the exile. We are told about that. But again, you see, he's the one we go to. He's our only hope, our only help, even when we've offended him. And so who's going to bring me to this city? Who's going to help me against this enemy? The one that I offended. God is the one who brings David to Edom. God is the one who helps David and then Israel after the exile. Okay. And so surely this is relevant for them and it is relevant for us. There are times when God does not go out with us and we fail. There are times that we suffer defeat and hardships, maybe not in battle, but in other kinds of things. God may work against us due to our sin, and yet there is no one else and nothing else capable of helping. Maybe I could put it this way. When God works against us, he works against us in constructive ways. It isn't just punitive. We say the same thing when we are disciplining our children, right? We're not just wailing on them because we're mad at what they did and they didn't listen. We're doing it in a way to teach them something, to instruct them, to bring something good out of it. So hence we use the term discipline because we are trying to make disciples. And of course we know the scripture says God does that with us because he loves us. All right, let's look then at the next verse. Verse 11 in Psalm 60, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. As we transition to Psalm 108, verse 12, it's identical in the Hebrew. Give to us help in distress, since vanity, the salvation of man. Notice no verb in that last line. Again, drives it home here a bit. Um, Notice that David now is petitioning again. We started with that. Here today, here he's asking for God's help again. Man cannot save. We sung that in the first hymn this morning. Man is not our help. Uh, They can be helpful and God can use others to help us, but ultimately only God can help. This is true when 18,000 soldiers are coming against us. It is true when we are vulnerable without a city wall. It is true in our troubles today. And we have the same God we can turn to. So then our last verse, Psalm 60, verse 12. Through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. And as we come to Psalm 108, verse 13, no changes in the Hebrew at all. With God, we will do strength. 
and he, he will trample our enemies. Note the emphasis there. God is emphasized. Now, did you see what happened here? As we came to the end of Psalm 60, there's no indication that the war is over yet. We haven't gotten to 1 Chronicles 18 yet. And the success, the end of it all. David's in the midst of the hardship. He's in the midst of the battle. He's in the midst of the question and confusion, maybe you could say. But do you hear his faith? Do you hear his confidence here? With God, we will do strength. And he, he will trample our enemies. It hasn't happened yet, but he will. We have that confidence. Haggai and Zechariah, along with Ezra and Nehemiah, helped Israel after the exile to have the same attitude. To rebuild the temple, to rebuild the wall, to turn away from their sinful actions and do what was right. And the same is true for us. When the wokesters come against us to try to cancel a conference, or when the new IRS agents turn against conservatives, or when a mob might come against you in the middle of the city, or a teacher ridicules your faith, or the boss demands that you cut corners or break the Sabbath, whatever it is, whatever that enemy is, we can turn to the Lord. And even when those opponents come against us because God is displeased, we still can turn to the Lord and trust in him. As I'm reading through these verses, I keep hearing Paul. Think of Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Isn't that very much like this last verse here? Think of Paul in Romans 8 and those final words. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because even if God is against us, it's for our good. And think of Paul's words in Ephesians 6. Even when those spiritual forces come against us, we can stand. Because our God is with us. Our God fights for us. So, here are a few thoughts from this psalm. And what an encouragement. And hopefully, as we're going through this, we're going to be prepared for Psalm 110. For he is our true king. All right, let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the relevance of it. Going even all the way back to to Jacob, some 4,000 years ago. Hey, not quite. We go back to David about 3,000 years ago, after the exile about 2,500 years ago. But oh, how relevant your word is in every day and every age. Because you don't change. Your promises don't change for your people. And this, Lord, for this, we give you thanks and praise. We are thankful too, Lord, that even though we so frequently fail, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in very big ways. We are thankful, Lord, that you care enough to show displeasure that that sin is is not something insignificant. And we are thankful, Lord, that you do love us enough to discipline us in our sin. But we are thankful too, Lord, that we can come to you 
that even in those times of displeasure, even in those times of hardship, we can come to you and we can seek help and deliverance and salvation. For this, Lord, we give you thanks. And we ask, Lord, then that you would strengthen us by your spirit to apply these words, not just to fill our minds, but to live by this, even even in these days this week. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and that you would be glorified in it all. We pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen.